This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. April is drawing to a close and... In the immortal interpretation of the words of Justin Timberlake during his InSync days, it's gonna be May. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. Young athletes working with adults to bring about change. That's a good news story to end on. We'll go through the latest details on the investigation into the gruesome murder of a physician's assistant in New Scotland. Charged with second-degree murder, he showed no emotion. He just seemed very clear-eyed as he walked into the courtroom. And we'll take a look at the state of home buying and financing. Spoiler alert, it's not great. The market is nuts. Like, if anybody, if you're trying to buy a house right now, what you're going to hear over and over again is low inventory. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, back again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk about the top headlines this week. We'll start with the fact that New York's highest court threw out all of the political maps that Democrats in the state Senate drew up for Congress. So tell me, what happened there? What are the specifics? Well, not all of them, but most of them. <laughs> um, yeah, the Court of Appeals, which as noted is the state's you know highest judicial panel, sent down a ruling on Wednesday after hearing uh, oral arguments on Tuesday. What the court concluded was that the uh, state Senate and congressional maps that had been drawn by Democrats were gerrymandered, were unconstitutional, and therefore had to be tweaked and redone. The uh, maps for state assembly districts, however, were okay. So what that sets up is the likelihood that we will now have two primaries, one in June, which was the original primary date where people will vote to select candidates for assembly districts, and for the statewide races, including governor and lieutenant governor. And we can talk a lot about that (laughs) further if you want. And then potentially in August, a date certain has not yet been set by the Board of Elections, which I'm sure is freaking out right now, for the state Senate and for Congress. Now, this has all kinds of implications, not only for candidates who are running for uh, for the Senate and for Congress, but also for con- control of Congress, because it is quite likely that once these maps for Congress are tweaked, 
they will be less friendly to Democratic candidates, which, of course, in a closely contested race to control the U.S. House could have very uh, significant implications. All right. Well, be sure to check with your local Board of Elections for your polling place for multiple primaries. All right. Sticking with state news, though, uh, a fairly shocking report has just come out from the state inspector general's office that has looked into how two state agencies responded to allegations of domestic violence by a state employee. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. um, Inspector General Lucy Lang's office on Thursday morning released um, this report that noted that an employee at the state office of general services filed a complaint in 2019, in the summer of 2019, where he said, hey, my my wife has been using her work cell phone inappropriately. His wife was an employee of the State Office of Information Technology Services, essentially the state's IT agency. When investigators went to the wife, she said, well, yes, I have been using my work cell phone to document my husband's acts of domestic violence against me. And the report from the IG comes to the conclusion that both of those agencies utterly failed to follow through on the agency's policies on what you're supposed to do when an employee informs you that she or he is a victim of alleged domestic violence. The tragedy here beyond that is that the husband, about a year later, a little bit more than a year later in the fall of 2020, murdered his wife and then killed himself. So obviously, there is speculation that these agencies in failing to appropriately respond to this perhaps failed to take action that could, um, not necessarily would have, but could have perhaps headed off a terrible crime. Wow. Well, visit our Capital Confidential section at timesunion.com for more on that story. Let's move on now. Congressman Paul Tonko says the FBI is now looking into the Schoharie limo crash, which is something that they previously wouldn't even talk about, right? So what changed? Correct. I think public pressure and official pressure as well was brought to bear. Now, this takes a little bit of backstory. Of course, the October 2018 Schoharie limo crash involves an FBI informant, Shahed Hussein, who owned the limo company that put this decrepit vehicle on the road and ultimately resulted in the death of 20 people, 17 passengers, the drivers, and two pedestrians. And the question has been asked based on reporting collected by our own Larry Rulison and amplified and deepened by uh, Ben Ryder Howe in a story in New York Magazine that appeared in January that we've spoken about on this podcast before, uh, you know, noting that there is extensive speculation and questions surrounding what, if anything, the FBI might have done to protect their asset, Shahed Hussein, who worked on several undercover terrorism investigations after 9-11 for the agency, whether they protected him in his dealings with code enforcement officials, because he owned an equally decrepit motel, and of course, with uh, state transportation investigators who were several times, you know, citing his vehicles for various violations. This vehicle should not have been on the road 
and numerous state agencies failed to, to take action. I'm sorry, this is turning into a theme for this discussion, but there you go. Now, the FBI originally said, hey, we're not going to talk at all about any of our informants that could place you know, future informants or current informants in jeopardy. But of course, the cat was out of the bag that Shahed Hussein was uh, an undercover agent for the FBI. He had testified in open court in some of these cases. So uh, the FBI, under pressure from Paul Tonko and Elise Stefanik and others, said this week that essentially their inspector general's office, although they have a different term for it, was going to look into whether or not the way that it was phrased in a letter to Tonko uh, about this incident and whether there was any FBI involvement in the investigation. As a result, the FBI director has ordered that the agency further review the matter, a spokesperson wrote. Now, that leaves open the question of whether or not the agency is going to look back before the crash into whether or not the agency ever protected or assisted Shahed Hussein. Paul Tonko says that, yes, that that is going to be an aspect of the FBI's sort of self-investigation, but that, of course, remains to be seen. Well, we'll be watching that, and I definitely encourage anyone who's interested to go back and listen to the episode where you interviewed Larry and Ben Ryder Howe. Uh, very powerful stuff. All right, one final story coming out of our sports department this week. Uh, the state's public high school athletic association reversed a controversial rule about wearing hair adornments during sports competitions. Can you tell us what happened with that this week? Yeah, specifically beads in your hair, which tend to be worn more often by black athletes. Back in February, the state high school athletic association sent out an email essentially reminding people of this policy and saying, hey, there's a waiver system. You need to take a picture of the young athlete who might want a waiver and send it in. We'll take a look at it. And lots of people said that it really felt like this was racial targeting and that it tended to alienate and, as it were, other uh, young athletes of color. Coaches and school leaders over the weekend vociferously protested after the policy was um, enforced in a rather heavy-handed way at two meets in the Capital Region. On Monday, James Allen, our outstanding high school sports reporter, spoke to Robert Zayas, who is the executive director of the state association, and uh, Zayas complained that, you know, coaches and school leaders were complaining in the media, look, if you don't like the policy, you can change it, but you've got to do it through channels. And then on Tuesday morning, uh, Zayas and the association unilaterally placed a moratorium on uh, enforcement of this policy. So apparently, Zayas decided that there were, in fact, uh, actions that could be taken uh, quickly on this. It's a good story. And young athletes at Mahanison on the track team on Monday decided that they were going to all wear beads in their hair at a meet that was coming up on Wednesday. And they did just that even after the decision of the moratorium was announced on Tuesday. So young athletes working with adults to bring about change. That's a good news story to end on. Exactly. Let's end it on a positive note here. All right. Thanks, Casey, so much for talking to us. And we will check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. 
As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. The gruesome April 13th murder of a beloved physician's assistant in his home in an Albany suburb has sent shockwaves through the capital region. Accused of the brutal slaying? A purported ex-boyfriend of the victim's wife. Since the formal indictment of the suspect last week, the Times Union has learned more information about the alleged homicide and the events that both preceded and followed it. Managing editor Brendan Lyons has been breaking news on this story for more than two weeks. He and I are now going to go through what we know so far about the investigation. Now, before we start, a caution. The following contains descriptions of circumstances that may be distressing to hear. So please, please listen with care. In the sleepy town of New Scotland, the morning of April 13th was cloudy and slightly cool, somewhere in the 40s. 29-year-old Alana Raiden left her suburban home on the sleepy cul-de-sac of Miller Road around 7 a.m. She drove to St. Peter's Hospital to start her shift as a physician's assistant in the surgical department. Her husband, 35-year-old Philip Rabadi, was at home sleeping. He was also a physician's assistant at St. Peter's. They worked in the same department. His shift was due to start around lunchtime. Her husband failed to show up for his hospital shift at noon, which for a physician or a physician assistant is unheard of generally because they have patients scheduled, they have duties that are, there are people waiting for their services. She couldn't reach him by text, by phone. So she called 911. Raiden left work and called her father-in-law, local caterer and restaurant operator Shah Rabadi. They both raced to the house on Miller Road. They drove toward the residence separately as the same time that an Albany County Sheriff's deputy was driving toward the residence. And they all arrived and found this horrible scene in, in the garage of the house. Phil Rabati was bound with his hands behind his back and he had been mutilated and stabbed and slashed. Many of the wounds to his, to his head and, and shoulder areas. Philip Rabati graduated from Gilderland High School in 2004. He was an honor student, a star soccer and tennis player. He graduated from the University at Albany with a degree in mathematics. According to his family, he'd always dreamed of being a doctor. That dream came true. He went on to medical school at Albany Medical College, graduated in 2015, and since then, he'd become a popular physician's assistant in the St. Peter's Hospital Surgical Department. On the side, he was an avid woodworker. He married fellow physician's assistant, Alana Raiden, in September of 2021. Their wedding photo shows off an attractive and happy couple 
with bright eyes and radiant smiles. Theirs had all the makings of what friends and family say would have been an idyllic life. The newlyweds had built the house on Miller Road and moved in earlier that summer. But on April 13th, Philip Rabati's life was cut short at that very house in a horrific way. The Albany County Sheriff's Department, upon discovering the body, immediately began an investigation. And it wasn't long before pieces of this tragic puzzle began to fall into place. It happened to be that the neighbors, at least two of the residents across the street or next door, had ring cameras, you know, the, the type of security cameras that, would, that were on and that captured a man in a white pickup truck um, approaching the residence around just after 7.30 a.m., about 40 minutes after uh, Elena had left to go to her job at the hospital. And the man had a surgical mask on and a hood on, you know, a, like a head covering, according to a neighbor who was walking their dog and also saw him. So that man and that truck, that white truck, immediately became a focus of the investigation. License plate readers near the scene picked up the vehicle. It was a rental, loaned out from an enterprise rental car location on Central Avenue in Albany. It was rented to 40-year-old Jacob Klein of Virginia. Yesterday evening, Jacob Klein was taken into custody in Virginia with the assistance from the Virginia State Police and the Tennessee Highway Patrol. That's Albany County Sheriff Craig Apple three days after the murder at a press conference. It was then that he released some of the first details of their investigation. Jacob did travel to this area from Virginia with his vehicle and began stalking the victim three days prior to the murder. Who is Jacob Klein? He grew up in Cobleskill, New York. He was the son of a prominent lawyer in town. He graduated from the Albany Academy in 1999, where he was known as Larry. That's his middle name. He went to Clarkson University. Then he joined the Army. He served tours as a combat medic in Afghanistan and Iraq. He had no criminal record, no history of violence. After he left the Army, he was honorably discharged. He went to school to become a physician's assistant. The same school, in fact, at roughly the same time as Philip Rabati's wife, Alana Radin. At some point, they interview the, the widow, the wife, and, and she had talked to them about Jacob Klein, who was her ex-boyfriend. And, and at this time, two weeks ago, he lived in Virginia, south of Roanoke. According to what Radin told police, She'd had a personal relationship with Jacob Klein for several years. She'd said she'd broken things off, though, about three years ago. He moved to California, and they'd had no interaction since, save a few email exchanges. She told police that neither she nor her husband had any idea Klein had been in the Albany area around the time of the murder. There was suddenly a, a trail of circumstantial evidence 
that put her ex-boyfriend who lived um, eight, 10 hours away as, as you drive, to put him in Albany two days before the homicide. He rented an Airbnb. He rented a car in his own name, uh, the truck that they believe was driven there to the homicide scene. They also had witnesses. One of Philip Rabati's neighbors had been on Miller Road walking their dog on the morning of April 13th, just before the police say the murder occurred. She said that a man who at least matched his build, he was he was about 5'8", as she described him, and, and, and rather stocky, and, and it turns out Jacob Klein now has been lifting weights and he's stocky and 5'8". That neighbor thought that he looked out of place he was too early for him to be there as a contractor. He wasn't dressed like a contractor. Police say ring doorbell footage from neighbors shows a man in a surgical mask and a hood approaching the front door. He bangs on it loudly for several minutes. When no one answers, he begins to walk away. But then, Philip Rabati answers the door. The suspect turns around and walks back. He had what the neighbor described as folded papers over his hand. And during their conversation in the doorway, Philip Rabati is just wearing shorts, he's barefoot. He mentions something, or, or there's some exchange where he talks about the man's hand. And they said that you could see him on the ring camera suddenly react and, and kind of become in a subdued position. And he starts to retreat into the house. Their theory is that Jacob Klein, who had purchased a handgun not too long ago, was clutching that handgun, and that's how he was able to get in the house and overtake Rabati, whose, whose hands at some point were tied behind his back. Police say that from there, circumstantial evidence against Jacob Klein piled up fast. They put him, with the help of the FBI, which is has uh, ways now that they can track someone's cell phone even after the fact. And they had put that cell phone in the area of the, the couple's house a day or so before the homicide. They had also found that the Airbnb, which was, was a short distance from St. Peter's off New Scotland Avenue, you could walk to St. Peter's from there. And they believed that Klein had also gone to St. Peter's to surveil either the husband or the wife or both. Klein was arrested on April 15th, two days after the murder. He was pulled over by law enforcement in his car in Virginia, just by the Tennessee border. So at some point, as they're, they're building circumstantial evidence against Mr. Mr. Klein, the Virginia State Police alert the Albany County Sheriff's Department the following day, I believe on Thursday, that his truck, he drives a 4Runner, Toyota 4Runner, had hit a license plate reader in the state of Virginia. So he was back in his home state at that point, his vehicle was. Law enforcement agents began monitoring Klein's movements on Thursday. He was at his home about a half an hour south of Roanoke. They did not yet have an arrest warrant, so they just watched. In the middle of the night, he gets in his truck with his dog and what we would later know is a handgun in the console, and he starts driving west. 
At this point, law enforcement suspected that Klein may have been trying to flee the country, head to Mexico, possibly, given the direction he was driving. So they go to a town judge in New Scotland, and they have a warrant issued for his arrest. The police, though, knowing that he has a registered handgun and maybe another firearm, they are want to be careful about how they approach him, with the idea being that he might try suicide by cop, for instance, or try to harm himself or harm others around him. So their thought was they wanted to wait to see if he would pull into a rest area or a hotel for the night or something like that. But that's not what happened. He went to Memphis and he met an acquaintance who had driven from Texas and met him, you know, roughly halfway. And Jacob Klein turned his dog over to that individual. And he eventually, he turned around and came back toward Virginia. Law enforcement intercepted Klein as he crossed the border from Tennessee. Initially, we were told that he wouldn't get out of the car immediately and that he, he appeared to reach toward his glove box. But someone close to Klein who spoke to us um, on background had said that that was not true, that he that, that the gun, in fact, was in his console. It was loaded, but that he immediately followed their orders. He got out of the car. He got down on the ground. He was actually in the driving lane of an interstate when he got out of his car and they took him into custody. Jacob Klein was held in Virginia. He waived his extradition rights. The Albany County Sheriff's collected him and brought him back to the Capital Region for an arraignment on April 21st. He is currently being held at the Albany County Correctional Facility in Colony. He was brought before a town justice in the town of New Scotland at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and charged with second-degree murder. He showed no emotion. He just seemed very clear-eyed as he walked into the courtroom, and, um, and now he's remanded, and he was subsequently indicted. This week, the Times Union reported on more details about the investigation that came out in court records and from law enforcement sources. According to what Elena Radin told police, Jacob Klein had sent her an email in September, just before her wedding. The email, she said, concerned her. In it, Klein had said that he moved back to the East Coast from California, where he'd been since about 2017. He told her he'd made a lot of money, and he wanted to rekindle their relationship. By all accounts, this this was an anomaly in his life. Even Elena Radin had... Um, had described the police that while they had not a successful relationship, that he had never been physically abusive of her, although according to investigators, she did describe him as psychologically abusive at times. There was also more revealed about the crime scene. The faucets in some bathrooms in the house on Miller Road were on when police arrived on April 13th. Water was spilling over onto the floors. And another neighbor admitted that they had heard yelling coming from the house around the likely time of the murder. But they said they did not think at the time that it had warranted a call to police. Uh, they're very serious allegations, obviously. You feel terrible for the Rabadi family, his wife and family, but you know, Mr. Klein has entered a plea of not guilty. He's entitled to due process. 
the presumption of innocence. And Klein's lawyer, Manhattan-based criminal defense attorney Mark Betterow, spoke to reporters outside the courtroom in New Scotland on April 21st following the arraignment hearing. And we'll be getting discovery in this case over the next several weeks. We'll review it and go from there. But I would just caution the public to presume innocence as anyone is entitled to and wait for the details to come in in the courtroom, not through press conferences and releases by the police officers. It could be that they wage a court fight and try to get some of the evidence thrown out. Maybe he'll even try his hand and go to trial if he has a lot of money and has nothing to lose. But there's a sense among the law enforcement who have seen this case and, and seen this individual that he is he almost, in their view, appears resigned to this, that he, he did this in a way they feel that was not bulletproof, that almost that he knew he would be caught. You wonder if he will simply take a plea and hope that, you know, he might get 20 or 25 to life or something like that is what is what some of them are speculating about. Every homicide and every family's loss is, is horrific. And this one just seems to have devastated so many individuals. When I, when I left court after his arraignment in New Scotland, I remembered seeing a couple carloads of people who were there. I don't know that they went inside because I was in the front of the courtroom, but they might have just been there. But they were, they were adults in, you know, in probably their 20s and 30s, and they were all in tears in their cars. Friends and family held a memorial service for Philip Rabadi last week. Alana Radin wrote her husband's obituary. In it, she says, quote, Philip was a shining bright light in this world. He was kind, endlessly charismatic, funny, intelligent, patient, and an immediate friend to all. His smile was breathtaking and his laugh was infectious. Philip was simply a magnetic person to have known him was a genuine gift in this lifetime. To read more of our reporting on this story, visit timesunion.com. After the break, are you thinking about buying a home in the Capital Region? We'll talk to real estate reporter Lee Hornbeck about the current market and whether you should jump in. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you've been thinking about buying a home lately, you've no doubt noticed that it's not exactly a buyer's market at the moment. It's been that way across America going on two years now, roughly since the pandemic took hold. And with the Fed threatening to raise interest rates again to curb inflation, it's not looking like it'll change much in the near future. 
Times Union real estate reporter Lee Hornbeck recently took a look at what that less than hopeful outlook means for the market here in the capital region. I wanted to look at the twin things that are happening. Inflation, which is about 8%, which is really high. Like this time last year, we were at a little over 2%, closest to 3%. And that's where economists kind of like the rate of inflation to be in the United States and elsewhere. Then came COVID-19. There was an infusion of like $3 trillion from the federal government to help Americans. If you have like a lot of cash circulating in the economy, it creates inflation. So we saw the prices of regular things go up, you know, milk and bread, then the invasion of Ukraine, and that resulted in gas prices going up. So all these things are happening, which makes our cost of living just generally higher. Every time we get gas, every time we go to the grocery store, every time we just even like get ice cream down the street. My question was, you know, how is that affecting a market that is already really difficult for home buyers? Difficult might be an understatement, right? The market is nuts. Like if anybody, if you're trying to buy a house right now, what you're going to hear over and over again is low inventory. So I said, oh, here come higher interest rates, you know, from the 3%-ish to the 5.8% for 30-year fix. It's lower for 15 years. Isn't that just going to make things outrageously impossible for home buyers who are already having a hard time finding a house where their bid will be accepted? You know, the, people look at houses over and over again, they make an offer. And because houses are selling for above asking in, in most places, that bid is rejected. So I, I went and rounded up some experts to talk to me about those twin things, um, inflation and interest rates, and how that affects our already kind of fraught real estate market. All right. So do we have any hope, uh, those of us who are interested in buying homes at some point here, is there any hope? The question is, will it soften the market, right? So the answer is, I think it's not going to soften our market really anytime soon because, and this comes from J.R. George at Trusco, the demand is still so high. And it's hard to say when that'll end, you know, because every time you raising interest rates, you do lose a segment of the buying public. They're like, I'm out. I can't. I was looking at $1,100 a month at a mortgage. And now because the interest rate is higher, I'm looking at $1,250 a month. And I, I just can't swing that. So I'm out. But then, you know, there's a lot of people who are cash buyers. They don't need a mortgage. They're going to continue to buy houses. Uh, so what I found is that Inflation is starting to settle a little bit. The Fed changes the interest, raises the interest rate to combat inflation and slow the market, right? So that may happen nationwide where the real estate market will slow a little bit and that will kind of fix the inflation problem by slowing the market, if that makes sense. But then there's all, always the question of the Northeast and the capital region in particular is a little bit recession-proof in, in terms of during the recession, the housing market issues that were experienced elsewhere in the country were not as bad here. And also on the flip side, we're, we're not really a boom. You know, There's not a boom here. And, and that has to do with a lot of stability of many employers. There's a lot of people who work for the state. They work for very stable employers. But it means if you're looking for a price correction, 
or a change, a switch from a seller's to a buyer's market, that does not seem to me from what I learned in reporting the story to be coming anytime soon. So that's not the news I wanted to hear, but <laughs> it definitely puts things into perspective. I mean, do you know, I mean, why is it that so many people want to buy houses right now? Like, is that a pandemic thing? Is that a normal ebb and flow of the market thing? Like, what's the deal behind that? Well, there's two things at play there, right? So is demand really that high or is inventory just that low? So because there's fewer homes being built, you know, new construction and fewer people putting their homes on the market, it just kind of ramps up the mania for the houses remaining. The other thing that's happening, which kind of leads me to believe that it is more of a demand issue, which is exacerbated by a low inventory issue, is that rents are increasing as well. So the longer you're paying rent and the more it's going up, the less attractive it is to keep renting and the more attractive it is to buy. So the other thing that's important to know right now is that interest rates are going to continue to climb. So we're hovering near the 6% rate right now. It's only going to climb. The feds have all but said that they're going to raise interest rates again. So you might hurry up and buy now at the higher interest rate that you're hoping not to pay. Then at least you own you've gotten into the house and you can refinance a couple of years down the road. That was kind of a, some of the prevailing expertise I got today from the people I, I talked to was that it's still better to buy and get into a house, even at that higher rate. I mean, historically 5%, 6% is not actually that high. There was a time, you know, before 2001 that borrowing rates were 7%. In the eighties, it was 18, 20%. I mean, we've gotten really used to these low interest rates because they were that way so we could recover from the recession. And people still bought houses at all those periods of history, despite those really high rates. You'd think, oh my God, I'm never going to buy a house. It's too much. The point the world is kept the, on turning. the rate will come down and you should you can refinance later. Interesting. Okay. So with that in mind, I mean, what what's the, if you had to give some advice to somebody who was looking to buy a house right now, I mean, what would you say? I'm pretty cautious on all of these things, pretty conservative, but it's just rents are going up like pretty dramatically because landlords are starting to recoup their losses from the pandemic time. And some advice I got from Jeffrey Miller, who's a VP at Sunmark and has been in the game since 94. He was like, it's still the American dream to own. And you have so much more power if you own your house. I mean, the bank really owns it for the for the first 10 years because you're just paying off interest. But, but you're building equity. You're building equity. And, and so what banks and lending institutions, credit unions are seeing is people are coming in and getting equity lines of credit. So their house, because inflation and so forth, their house has really dramatically risen in value. So people can get, quote unquote, free money out of that house by taking an equity line of credit, which then, you know, we go around and do another conversation we have about building decks and building on a room and putting in a pool. And that's where people are getting the money for it, whether or not they'll find the contractor to do that work or the materials. Right. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Supply chain issues and contracting issues. Yeah. So I I don't know. I don't feel like I'm giving you a straight answer because it also is very personal. Right. Maybe there isn't a straight answer. I mean, if you're in a position where you have to buy, you're going to buy. It's a better investment than rent. But on the other hand, like, 
buying a house is its own special burden. There's really so many things that point to it's better to own. It gives you more control over your life. I mean, you can't control for inflation. You can't control for taxes. But I mean, you're not going to have a 30% increase in your monthly payment if you own. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Brendan Lyons, and Lee Hornbeck for their contribution to this episode.